the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Oh, yes, he is. Good afternoon to you. Welcome. It is a Tuesday. No, it's not. That's a lie. It's Wednesday, isn't it? <laughs> you know, since the holiday last week, my, my calendar is all discombobulated. Maybe yours is suffering the same way. In any event, it is indeed on a Wednesday. It is the 28th of November, if you're keeping track. It's Craig Roberts in your ear. And great to have you with us today as we are here Monday through Friday addressing issues that impact your life and your world. We'll do a lot more of that on tonight's show. We're also going to give away some goodies. We have got Casting Crowns. Their Christmas tour will be taking place at the Paramount Theater in Oakland next Tuesday. Wow. And we've got tickets we're going to give you coming up a little bit later on in tonight's program. Brian Johnston with the National Right to Life Committee is going to join us. Give us an update on the judge's decision concerning physician-assisted suicide in California. I'll give you a hint. It's not good news. Also later on, we'll talk a bit about faith in the workplace. Brad Dacus joins us with an interesting story out of Oregon. All that to follow here on this Wednesday edition of Lifeline. All right, let's get down to cases. The holidays are here in full gusto, as we are all aware. And, and certainly during this time of the year, for a lot of folks, we look forward to this time of the year. It's shopping and cooking and family and decorations and, and celebrating the real reason for the season and all of the wonderful aspects of the holidays. But for also huge numbers of people, this is not a pleasant time of the year. It's a difficult time of the year. And, and, and seemingly for some folks, um, during the Christmas holidays, addictions take no holiday. In fact, addictions and addictive behavior sometimes tend to go on overdrive during the holidays. Why exactly is that? And how can we go about reclaiming life and moving into a healthy future in addressing these challenges? How do we go about healing the scars of addiction? That's the title of a book by my first guest tonight. He is best-selling author. He's got more than 25 books on topics that range from addiction to depression to eating disorders. He's also the founder of the Center for Counseling and Health Resources, A Place of Hope, Dr. Gregory Jantz. And Dr. Jantz, great to have you back on the show. It is good to be with you always. I know this is a, a topic that can be difficult because we all know somebody who really has been touched by uh, addiction. And, and if not somebody that we know, maybe even ourselves, that, that struggle with this. And, 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 and I guess the first big question is, what, what of the idea that it tends to seem to rear its ugly head with full gusto during the holiday seasons especially? Why is that? You know, there's a lot of reasons for that, and that's exactly what happens. You know, there's, there's what I call family triggers. There's those times where maybe there's been past hurt or trauma, and all of a sudden, uh, your family, you're around family who maybe you haven't seen in a while, and there's all those old hurts, 
and all of a sudden you feel like drinking or overeating. I call it the overuse syndrome. You feel like overspending, overeating, um, drinking, uh, but it's that tendency to want to change how you feel. And so we look to what I call mood elevate. And these coping mechanisms, these efforts at elevating our mood, they come in a variety of forms, don't they? Because people hear addiction and think immediately, well, you're talking drugs or alcohol. But the list is pretty significant, isn't it? Yes. And, you know, it could come in, you know, food's a pretty common one. Easy to get into that right now. (laughs) So, um, you know, this digital addiction, we can just escape. Uh, We might want to feel like just isolating. So, absolutely, there's a lot of different ways to do this. And we generally engage in this behavior, and you kind of gave a clue to this a moment ago, Dr. Jans. We generally behave in a lot of this behavior because it is a a numbing mechanism or a coping mechanism, and I, I suppose at a level we could even call it a survival skill. Does a lot of that stem back to family dynamics, past experiences, where we're trying to somehow deal with some pain, some hurt that we otherwise just don't know how to confront or get over? You know, that's exactly what can happen. Uh, We don't know what to do. We're afraid. So along with depression, uh, which is, you know, a struggle this time, a lot of times there's a lot of anxiety. We don't really understand what's going on, but you feel anxious, and, and you're looking to feel a different way. Uh, And so I see that depression and anxiety really increase this time of year. A lot of folks, I think, is maybe a a coping mechanism after a long time when maybe they've they've tried, they've failed, they've tried again. They feel as if, gee, getting to the first step seems to be so hard to do for a lot of reasons. Or if they get there at all, they sometimes maybe sort of surrender with the idea. And you talk about this in the book. They sort of adopt the mentality that they're going to just simply learn to live with it. Well, you know, this is my lot in life. Uh, I have a genetic predisposition towards this kind of behavior. Or, well, if it wasn't for what I went through as a kid, I wouldn't be like this. So we yeah. kind of we kind of embrace it, but in doing so, we, we allow ourselves to kind of live in that, in that handicapped place where we're not really living life to the fullest, aren't we? Exactly. And this is the subtlety of addiction. Think about it. Nobody says, starts off and says, I want to become like an alcoholic. I, I want to I be an addict. But it, that's how subtle it is. And uh, before we know it, that food, that drink, it's it's controlling you, and then we get into that mode of saying, okay, you know, it's not a big deal, I can stop, and we keep start keeping it a secret from everybody. So now we have this toxic secret inside, and uh, after a while, it, it's controlling us. We're telling us ourselves a lie in order to continue that behavior. Can we get caught up in this, too, as, as after a season, part of our identity? In other words, the behavior becomes so second nature, so ingrained, that suddenly it defines, in a way, who we are? You know, yes. And then we take on this identity. We go, oh, there's no hope, and this is just who I am, and this is what I do. There's no way out. It's the only way that I know how to cope, so it's who I am. Let me ask and, you. And y- and that's a slow path, ultimately, to self-destruction and death. Undoubtedly so, because there, there's that sense of, you know, not only getting it wrapped up in your sense of identity, but then the ability to see the destruction that it's causing in your behavior to yourself, to others around you, to the ones you love. We kind of get blinded to all of that. 
Yes. Why is it, doctor, based on your years of clinical experience and thousands of hours sitting with patients, is there is there any sense that you have as to why it seems for so many people taking that first step to acknowledge it or address the addiction is seemingly so hard? You know, that first step is huge um, because we've spent so much time in denial and rationalization and oftentimes that first step of saying, I need help, comes in the middle of a crisis. And we start to lose everything, or uh, our life is totally upside down, and we're afraid. And I just, overall, I think people wait way too long, and it doesn't have to be that long, and, and, and take you down that path. You know, if we're honest with ourselves, we go, okay, you know what? Yeah, I know I have a problem, and and you know, be brave. And I think it's a time to say I need help. And you know, the book is a part of that. I need help, but then we're going to have to be accountable and get the right kind of help. Dr. Gregory Jans with us tonight. We're talking about his new book, Healing the Scars of Addiction: Reclaiming Your Life and Moving into a Healthy Future. You know, you mentioned the word fear. I. I think of one of the most uh, famous statements on that topic intoned by President Roosevelt during his inaugural in 1933, that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. You talk in the book about this, that oftentimes that notion of of dealing with taking the first step is oftentimes um, a huge stumbling block. It's a barrier because of fear. You talk about people that, that look at getting over an addiction, but they have a fear of starting because they have a fear of failure or a fear of exposure or or maybe even a fear of change okay what now i've lived with alcohol for so long in my life i'm not sure what life will look like without it i don't know how to cope without it or what will i do how will i manage and maybe for a while i have more anxiety if i if i think about not using or i'm not using I, i feel a lot of anxiousness to the person eavesdropping on our conversation right now it says okay i i get it and i know you guys are talking about me I, I I want to address this. I'm not sure how to start it. I'm not sure once I get it started how I'm going to stay on the road to recovery. And I'm particularly fearful of trying to do this going into the holidays. Won't you at least grant me the favor or let me, let me keep my addiction to get me through the holidays? And, of course, as, you know, a lot of things when we make promises in life, uh, we say we're going to, you know, change it when we get around to it, and we just never get around to it. You know, and that's the big lie, isn't it? I, I, I'll get help later. I'll stop doing this later. And look, I've got to. I'll go through the holidays. Uh, I'm going to have a good time. I'm going to. I'm going to party. It's going to be okay. Uh, I'll. It's kind of like I'll go on that diet after the weekend. And it's that same mentality, that same self-delusional lie that we tell ourselves. And it's. It's a lie. And the self-destruction continues, and I want to be really bold with somebody struggling with addiction and say, look, it takes you where you don't want to go, and we try to keep things a secret, but it really, really is a ticking time bomb. And the greatest amount of regret that I see is that people waited too long to get help. And and help is really the operative word here. Some people think, well, you know... um this is an issue that I'm dealing with that I, I'm, I'm fearful of exposure. So I'm just going to work through this on my own. You, you really need to do this with somebody beside you, don't you? You know, you do. 
And, uh, you know, I, I know sometimes people have a lot of mixed feelings about treatment or treatment programs, and I really believe in the whole person approach. Is, is we've got to address that spiritual side, and we've got to look at the scars that addiction has created in our own life and relationships. You know, there's a rebuilding of our physical well-being. You know, um, addiction can create a lot of nutrient deficiencies, some brain imbalances, uh, a lot of digestive issues that people don't realize. And so there's a period of time of healing and recovery, but I have to address, you know, how, how God designed me, and that's, i got to address the whole person. Yeah, there, there's the spirit man, there's the physical man, there's the mental well-being, and, and as you aptly point out, uh, they, they are not mutually exclusive. They are, in fact, very intrinsically tied together. I mean, you know, think about the fact that for years you've been engaging in an addiction that was actually covering up uh, pain of some horrible experience, so this becomes a coping mechanism, but then it also provides the dopamine that you need or other um, chemical um, events in the brain that, yeah. that allow you to work through the anxiety, the anger, the fear, whatever it might be. And, and suddenly when that, that false coping mechanism is removed for the equation, it takes a while for the body to get rebalanced too, doesn't it? That's right. And uh, allow that time. Nobody's ever regretted allowing the time for healing and recovery. What we do, we regret if we don't do something. Yeah, nobody ever says, gee, I wish I'd gone into recovery a lot later than I did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't hear that very often from your, your patients, to be sure. If folks listening say, okay, I get it, and I recognize that there has been this barrier of denial and secrecy and shame and minimizing and all of that, and you go into those details in the book, and they say, I, I also recognize that I can't do this alone. Maybe you've tried. I can't do this alone. Um, yes. Can folks reach out to a place of hope for some insights and some answers? You know, that's a great, great first step. And by the way, we've got resources around the country, and we work with people from all over the country. So reach out. But that's the thing that we have to do. We go, okay, I'm going to begin by I'm going to get some information, and I'm going to begin to learn. Uh, and what we want to do is, begin a plan of hope. And the book um, mentioned it really can be a good way to help walk you through what the process looks like, what the barriers are, how much commonality people feel like oftentimes they're alone in their addictions, the, 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 the common thread that so many people share with all of this as Dr. Jantz mentioned, too, from family dynamics to survival skills, you know, an attempt to either escape or distract or do a little bit of both from painful things in life. We all have different ways that we manage it. This is a book that will help open your understanding into why you behave the way you behave and what resources are available to you from a emotional, psychological, and most importantly, spiritual dynamic uh, to find the kind of healing and restoration that you're looking for, to literally reclaim your life and move into a healthy future. The book, again, is called Healing the Scars of Addiction, newly published by Ravel. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can get it through Amazon.com or directly through Dr. Jantz Ministry, aplaceofhope.com. Easy, easy address to remember, A Place of Hope. Dot com. And I'd like to thank Dr. Gregory Jans for offering us some insights on this very critical topic, particularly 
at this time of year. Dr. Jantz, thanks again so much for your time. 520, let's get an update on traffic for you. We'll do that with Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we have an update for you, and it is a bit of um, none, we'll put it this way. It's not a very nice Christmas gift, that's for sure, uh, coming in from a court, and that is a dealing with a, a stay that had been granted some time ago in the case of the California Right to Die statute that was passed back in June of 2016. And essentially what has transpired here now is that uh, courts come in and said, no, no, this is not a problem. We're going to go ahead and, and let it go through. Well, it is going to be a major problem. Uh, there's a lot of um, safeguards that are, quite frankly, lacking from this bill, now California law, that ought to really disturb all of us. Giving us some insights, we're joined now by Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. Brian, very disappointing to see the uh, state appeals court judge rejecting what had been a challenge. This came down just on Tuesday to our right to die law for terminally ill patients. This overturns that judge's ruling back from last May that had blocked the enforcement of the law. How dangerous is this going to be? Is this a major slippery slope in the arena of protecting the rights of the elderly and, and, and ill people here in California? Well, Craig, uh, to be perfectly honest, on this case, we had expected this. And I am working with Life Legal Defense, who are carrying the ball on this, but there's many other groups as well that are involved. This all along has been expected to go up to the state Supreme Court. We've already seen those folks that follow the news. You're well aware that there is, in fact, appeals court shopping, venue shopping. We saw that with, with President Trump and his rulings just recently. On the federal level, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals is notorious. So we did expect this to happen. What's critically important, though, for all listeners to understand is that there is a sea change. There's a sea change in our cultural values, and particularly in medicine. And while, indeed, we may be able to win at the state high court, don't think that stopping this cultural war that dismisses certain human beings, it's happening now. It has been happening in nursing homes. And we've talked about that in the past, the intentional denial of food and water to a patient that's not terminal but they're made terminal. There's a change in medical care. And just the language, I want to remind all of us, we know this, particularly if you're a Christian, you understand that you're in a spiritual battle, and language is used in that battle. Deceitful language is intentionally used. To call it the right to die, you know, there's no right to die. You're going to die. I'm sorry, everyone's going to die. But that's not what this is about. This is the process of killing. And... It's a very different verb. It's the intentional taking of a life that's being authorized under the law and being authorized by medicine. And the reason that medicine, since the Hippocratic Oath, this, is the, this predates Christianity. If you, as a physician, are free to kill a patient, it's impossible to protect that from expanding. Because of the pressures that are on a physician, because of the challenges that, that face a doctor, the pressure is, is 
really immeasurable, and that's the reason it's been against the law. It's also implied, of course, that this is a patient's decision. That is not true. It's not true in Oregon. It's not true in Washington. It's not true in the Netherlands. It's not true in Switzerland. It's not true here in California, because there is no psychological testing required. And we already know this, that the desire for suicide is an indicator this person is emotionally very, very depressed. They're facing something they've never faced before. And ultimately, if it's a good doctor, the doctor's going to say, you know, let's talk about this. Let's, let's see what we can deal with. Tell me about your pain. And again, we are now living in an era that even the most difficult of cancer pains can be treated without putting someone in a stupor. The deeper issue is emotional pain. And so what happens when a physician says, yeah, this person wanted to die, so I, I gave them the lethal dose. I oversaw the intentional killing of this patient. They are authorizing it. They're the deciders. It may be implied, oh, you get, to, you get autonomy. You get to do whatever you want. You're free to do anything. No. Ultimately, it is the physician that makes the decision whether or not they will write this prescription. And again, there's a reason that both the law and medicine protected emotionally vulnerable people from intentional killing. So there's a lot at stake here. The most dangerous thing as we look at this, I have to tell you, isn't even the law. We may well win at the state Supreme Court. My concern, my deep concern is that people are not paying attention to the battle of ideas and the dramatic cultural shift that dismisses whole classes of people. If you say, if this law, you know, if I have six months to live, therefore, that's too long to suffer. But what about that poor guy that's got six years of suffering, that's condemned to life in a wheelchair, as they say? That's six years of suffering. If our goal is to end suffering, why is it just for this one class? And what happens, once you declare a class of human beings can be intentionally killed with medicine, which is never designed to kill, that class always expands. Well, and as we've it, seen in cases of what's been transpiring and well-documented in nations like Belgium, the Netherlands, who humped onto this bandwagon far earlier than we did here in the United States. Uh, and, and with that, then, the attending broader ethics questions, the slippery slope down which we head, when suddenly, you know, the, the line between uh, do no good and help someone who's in pain gets blurred, or suddenly we package under very altruistic ideas the notion that we're just simply trying to alleviate someone's suffering when in reality that that barrier has been lifted between alleviating somebody's suffering and simply getting rid of people that are no longer convenient, no longer worthy, no longer taxpayers, no longer capable of caring for themselves. I mean, on and on the list goes. The, the, the whole issue of, of the so-called right to die backs right up against uh, a whole arena um, of, of ethics called the science of eugenics that has, unfortunately, a very ugly, dark black history uh, dating back to uh, the 1920s in this country and certainly into the 1930s when this was practiced with gusto in Nazi Germany. And therein lies the real concern, doesn't it, Brian Johnston, the idea that we, we, we crack open this door, 
let a little bit of light in, and before you know it, we're not going to be able to get any of these feathers back in the proverbial feather pillow, and we've suddenly created a monster that we can never tame. I think it's critically important. That's right, Craig. And it's critically important if you're a Christian, you actually have been given much more than you understand. That you need to recognize that you, as a Christian, have been given not only your forgiveness, which we are very appreciative of, but you've been given a moment in time here in this society. And this society is literally built. Our founders literally declared that every human being is endowed by their creator with a right to be alive. That's what our founders wrote in the founding documents of this nation. They took the most valuable ideas of Western civilization and they codified them. And so this idea, it is indeed a Christian value and a Christian worldview that human beings are made in the image of God. Now, this value of the human person is being attacked every day by utilitarianism that views human beings as mere things. Well, and, and so much of this, too, I want to add, is being kind of slipped in under the cover of darkness, even this particular bill. Uh, we talked about it on this program, but there wasn't much fanfare in the mainstream media. Um, and, and many of these things kind of get rushed through committee, and suddenly it doesn't seem like it's getting near the attention for the level of gravitas that attends to many of these decisions. They ultimately seemingly don't get near the attention that they ought to. And believe you me, that's very much by, uh, by, on purpose. That's very much with intent. Uh, We've got to jump out here. I want to thank Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, for that update on this measure, uh, undoubtedly now, the next step, the California State Supreme Court. Uh, it's a battle. It's an uphill battle, to be sure, but a one that has to be waged, because if not, it literally puts the risk of every Californian right square in the crosshairs. Brian Johnston with the National Right to Life Committee. All right, we're here at uh, 533. Let's get you updated quickly on traffic. We'll head back over to the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael Bennett, what's going on? We are back. You have been perhaps following the story. It's a, it's a tragedy, really. Young man, 27-year-old missionary and world explorer out of Vancouver, Washington, um, who we learned over the Thanksgiving holiday had attempted to go and share the gospel to a, a tribe that live um, in the, off the east coast of, of uh, India that uh, has not really had much contact with the outside world. John Allen Chow was convinced that God had called him to go and to deliver the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is believed to have been killed by the Sentinelese tribe after breaking local laws to attempt to visit them during November. There have been attempts now to um, go to that island and retrieve his body, uh, at this point, the decision has been made to hold off following several meetings and surveillance trips to uh, document the current situation. And you look at things like this and think, well, God bless him. Uh, he literally gave up his life on behalf of the gospel. But I wonder if some people hear a story like that and say, aha, you see, there is the reason why I never want to be involved 
in traveling overseas, particularly to some of these closed countries. And we've talked a lot about them here on Lifeline. As you know, uh, many in our audience have been supportive of efforts to bring uh, the gospel into closed countries. We have brought Bibles into places like Vietnam and North Korea and China and um, other parts of the world that are closed uh, legally, technically, to the gospel. And yet what of the idea of God wanting to deal with us in some fashion um, in the international scene? Well, joining me right now is Dr. Alex McFarland, certainly no stranger to KFAX listeners. He is the Director of Christian Worldview and Apologetics at the Christian Worldview Center of North Greenville University and is a well-known author and speaker. And uh, Dr. McFarland, a belated happy Thanksgiving to you. You've had some experience in overseas travel, and I understand that at least in one or two cases, they've been trips that have literally changed your life. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on. And, and yes, happy belated Thanksgiving to you as well and to all of your dear listeners. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you, it really does make you grateful for America, uh, for all of our failures and foibles. It's such a great country, and traveling overseas, especially to developing nations, really has made me more and more thankful for this country. Uh, but, yes, in traveling to five continents, and I hope to get to Australia and um, and uh, uh, Antarctica, and then I can tap into all seven. But um, I've had some memorable experiences, to be sure. And, you know, we, we hear the story of John uh, Chow, and certainly our hearts go out to his family. Uh, but at the end of the day, from all reports that I've seen, it would appear that he felt he was doing exactly what God wanted him to do. And while we can maybe debate the level of risk or whether or not the approach was the best one, um, at the end of the day, it appears as if he was genuinely exactly where he felt the Lord wanted him to be and doing what he wanted to do. And he had, he had a heart for people overseas. And maybe the bigger message here, sure. uh, Dr. McFarland, isn't, uh, you know, hey, a warning, be careful where you go when you share the gospel because you could put your life at risk. The irony is that there are Christians who have their life at risk every single day simply because they name Jesus as Lord and Savior. But the notion that we can have our eyes opened and and really change our entire perspective, not just in terms of understanding and having a deep, deeper sense of being grateful for the way in which God has blessed us here in the United States, but, but then, too, I think our spiritual eyes can be opened in a big way overseas as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I've found that it's, it's really beneficial to take young people on mission trips overseas, and, and we've done that a number of times because... You know, here in, in, in America, uh, you know, we, we really um, get stressed over first-world problems. You know, if, if an app doesn't load correctly on our phone, we get, you know, all been out of shape or something like that. And, uh, you know, when you take um, people of any age, but especially young people, on mission trips where you see people that are, you know, just clean drinking water is, is a blessing in their day or, you know, basic human needs – um, there, there are so many people who today don't even have a place to, you know, uh, privately go to the bathroom or, or practice, you know, basic hygiene. And Craig, you know, it's uh, we have so many blessings here in America. Um, you know, I may have told this story on the show before, but a, a couple of years ago we had a missions conference on the East Coast, and we flew in some uh, pastors from Ethiopia. And they landed, and it was early in the morning, and so we swung by a grocery store to get them some food, maybe 
you know, a bagel or something. And these two Ethiopian pastors, it was their first time in America, and we go in a grocery store, and they were just like, they they couldn't get their mind around it. And they were looking at all the aisles of cereals and foods and just endless choices. And one of the Ethiopian pastors asked me, just an average grocery store, nothing special, but he looked at me, he said, is there a food repository like this in every city? And I said, uh, there's a food repository like this on just about every corner. And yet a common grocery store that no American would really take special note of, to two Christian leaders from Ethiopia, it like blew their mind. And we're very blessed. You know, Rodney Stark, who is the Pulitzer-nominated nom- sociologist and a Christian, um, and he's at Baylor, and he, he's getting a little older, and I wanted to have him speak in one of our conferences, and I'm not sure we're going to be able to get that to happen. But um, Stark says, you know, America was built, and we became so prosperous on, quote, the iron Protestant work ethic. You know, hard work, deferred gratification, moral living. And the thing I wonder about, Craig, is will uh, what we've got be preserved as we drift farther and farther away from that iron Protestant foundation? Well, especially as the the slide from delayed gratification, that sense of, of risk and reward, suddenly moving into a demand for instant gratification at every turn, at every moment. And eventually you find that's just simply impossible. And so then people turn to other coping mechanisms. We just talked with a gentleman a few moments ago about dealing with addictions during the holidays and how it is that we oftentimes will then, and certainly there can be extenuating circumstances in life as well, but that notion that we just can't get enough and never really fully having the opportunity to, you know, it's one thing to hold up the mirror and look at yourself. Sometimes you need to hold up the, the, the telescope to look at somebody else far away in a different land with a different set of circumstances that are very unlike our own and, and see the world through their eyes where suddenly you realize you've got so much more that we, we walk right past the blessings every day and don't even realize they're standing there, and yet for other people, they are astonished by the things that we take it granted of. They are astonished by even being available. And, you know, during this season, as we are here, Thanksgiving is just a few days behind us. Christmas is several days before us. Um, Turning our sights to really beginning to appreciate and understand what it is that God has blessed us with and how we can use those blessings for the benefit of others as well, I think is, uh, is, is certainly one that um, is important to begin to exercise, especially since we see some of it, as uh, Dr. McFarland suggests, so much of it that seems to be disappearing. I'd like to thank Dr. Alex McFarland for uh, joining us tonight and more information about his ministry online, certainly at alexmcfarland.com. That's alexmcfarland.com. And uh, it's always a good time to uh, spend a few moments with Dr. Alex McFarland, one of America's leading Christian apologists, helping to give a little bit of perspective on where our thoughts and minds really ought to be this Christmas season. 546. Your thoughts are probably stuck in another one of those first world problems called traffic. Yeah, all of us have been there, done that. Few even got the T-shirt. Let's see what's going on. The latest for you from the KFAX Traffic Center with Michael Bennett. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, here, especially during the Christmas season, um, the matter of faith in the workplace comes up. We talk about um, the reason for the season. Oftentimes people uh, will talk about Christmas celebrations and whatnot, maybe invite coworkers to attend a Christmas presentation at church, things of this sort. And that's where a lot of folks find themselves getting into trouble. And largely it's because of ignorance of the law, oh, oh, not from the Christian's perspective necessarily, but from the perspective of others who somehow have it in their mind that there's this idea of separation of church and state, which I, I continue to put up my offer, show me where that is in the Constitution, and I'll write you a check for $1,000. Nobody's ever taken me up on it because it's not there. That said, there is a case of a ex-convict who got his life turned around who opened up a construction company north of us in Oregon and um, wanted to do something in terms of helping to encourage his employees and run his company in every regard, in every manner, as a solid God-honoring company. And he got himself into a bit of trouble because of that, largely because of the ignorance of the law of other people. All right, let's fill in all the blanks for you. Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer, the founder and the president of Pacific Justice Institute. Tell us a bit more about what's happened with this company in the, the Salem, Oregon area, counselor, and, and more specific, how he got himself into trouble by simply having a Bible study for his employees. Yeah, in fact, not only did uh, the owner, the president, uh, J- uh, Mr. Joe Joel Dow have a Bible study, he would actually pay the employees uh, attending the Bible study. So uh, he was very gracious and, and generous. His, his heart's desire was to not just to give them jobs that uh, enable them to have uh, the transformation and and uh, that, that he experienced himself. In and and let's mention, by the way, that a lot of these guys that he was hiring for his construction firm were ex-cons like himself, who otherwise might have had a very difficult time to find employment. This man obviously got his life changed around in a big way because of his relationship with Christ. So he's simply looking to share that and and uh, and be open about that with his employees. Yeah, he, he, he goes out of his way. He goes out of his way to... Uh, to hire people who are ex-cons, uh, and he has a, a big loving heart, and uh, he wants his, his uh, place of business to glorify God. So, uh, and to uh, to reach out to these these men, and and uh, so it's it's a wonderful thing he's doing. However, one employee uh, decided that uh, he would quit the job. He decided he didn't like um, the, the Christian environment, didn't like the Bible study. So he quit the just quit the job, and he filed a lawsuit suing the employer for alleging that he had to be in the Bible study and uh, that he had no choice, which is not not the case. So um, yeah, this lawsuit was filed not only against the company but also against the owner Joe, Joel Dow uh, in his personal capacity. Uh, and that's where Pacific Justice Institute got involved. And I'm going to guess that this wasn't any kind of a surprise to the employee when they came in and interviewed for the job and eventually accepted the job. I mean, it'd be kind of like coming to KFAX and saying, I'd like to go to work for you guys and and, uh, work in radio for you, and then uh, six months later say, I'm shocked, shocked to find out that religion is taking place on the airwaves. It's like, come on, this is not exactly a secret here. So it sounds like it's a retaliatory effort by a disgruntled former employee to stir up some trouble. And as you point out, the 
the Bible study was taking place on company time, and I would imagine that he did not use this as any kind of a yardstick to measure um, compensation, for example. It's not as if to say, well, uh, we want you to come back and have memorized all of the Book of Romans. Uh, when you come back on Monday, recite it from uh, uh, you know, beginning to end, and we'll give you a, uh, a raise. And those who can't, we're going to ding your pay. I mean, nothing like that, nothing absurd like that took place. Right. Oh, right. Now, he's, he's very respectful uh, for his employees. And uh, the employees, I mean, really appreciated what he was doing, that, that he really cared for these people. And um, was um, so it was, it's most unfortunate this one employee, uh, you know, he decided, nope, I, I don't want to work here, and I, I'm going to sue. So he, he filed this lawsuit, and he's, um, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's an attack not only on the company, but it's also an attack on, uh, Joel Dow himself, and so that's why we at Pacific Justice were called in uh, to uh, represent him in uh, his personal capacity, and we filed a motion to dismiss already. Uh, this is a, a it's, you know, it's, a, it's, it's an unsubstantiated lawsuit, and it's one that I uh, am optimistic that uh, he'll prevail in, but nonetheless, it's, it's still a um, you know, a, a, a real annoyance to have to go through this. Wherein lies the the line here that may or may not potentially get crossed um, when it comes to things? Mean, again, we're 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 acknowledging the fact that it wasn't as if Mr. Dahl was saying you have to attend this Bible study or I'm going to fire you or you will be denied uh, opportunities for advancement or have your pay docked. Nothing of that sort took place. Uh, and I have to wonder then, is there a line that, that that employers need to be wary of? And does it change between a company of of a private nature, privately held, versus one that's publicly traded? Um. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Yeah, the uh, uh, the first off, yes, uh, they, they can help offer Bible studies. They can pay employees during the Bible studies. Um, if an employee uh, decides to say that, hey, this violates my faith, my religious beliefs, they have to be reasonably accommodated under Title VII and allowed not to have to uh, participate in the Bible study or attend the Bible study. And that's what we have here. Uh, so that's that's not a problem. Uh, and as far as uh, companies versus private businesses. The Supreme Court has made a distinction uh, when it comes to uh, the, the rights of, uh, like, family-owned businesses like Hobby Lobby uh, to be able to uh, to live their faith, have their religious beliefs uh, respected by the court as a person, um, and, uh, and that's a, that's very important. Major corporations, S&P 500, they don't have that same uh, protection, and so uh, so generally speaking, such corporations. Um, you know, they don't have that, that same degree of, of uh, free exercise, uh, First Amendment free exercise protections. That said, they can still have uh, principles. They can still, uh, moral principles, they can still allow for Bible studies. Um, they just don't have the same degree of latitude, but they, they still have a, a, a tremendous degree of, of uh, potential impact in terms of their uh, values and uh, their perspective and their worldview. And, and, and let's be, be careful here to, to delineate the fact that, listen, any crazy person can sue for any crazy reason. This is not at all to suggest that a person of faith needs to suddenly, you know, uh, hide their faith when they step into their office. I mean, remember years ago, uh, my mother and, and her company 
they were doing manufacturing, and every uh, device that they shipped out inside of the box uh, went along a copy of the testimony, and it was just sort of a silent witness. So when the customer opened the box, there's a pamphlet. You can choose to throw it away, read it, do whatever you want with it, but uh, that was their way in their business of, of sharing their faith with others. And so I, I guess the, the, the word of caution here is that uh, you should understand the law, but also understand that you as a person of faith have rights and that that somehow doesn't get diminished just because you're you're engaging in in your faith in the workplace. Right. And in fact, we at Pacific Justice Institute have something very special that we provide without charge. It's on our website. Uh, it's a, a, a training video for business owners, small and large, on uh, faith in the workplace. All the things that they can legally do to live their faith, share their faith with their employees, their customers, their community. And that's free. That's our, our gift to people who wish to have that information and, and maybe maybe send that to someone else who does have a business that could really use that. We really want people to be equipped to live their faith boldly and confidently and lovingly through their business. It's a fantastic resource, and it's, um, as Brad Dacus just mentioned, absolutely free. To source that, uh, the easiest thing to do is go to faithintheworkplace.net. I mean, how, how, how easier can it get, right? Faithintheworkplace.net. Everybody who's a manager in a company who owns a business, small, medium, or large, should watch this video, have your other managers, team leaders watch the video to be better trained, have a better grasp on what the law says, so that not only do you know how to protect yourself from frivolous lawsuits, but also you know to what degree you can exercise your rights in sharing your faith. Faithintheworkplace.net, faithintheworkplace.net. Anytime you run into a case like this where you feel as if your rights are being abridged um, from either a threat to an outright lawsuit, feel free to contact the Pacific Justice Institute. They do all this work pro bono. How often do you hear an attorney that say, ah, that's it, no charge? Not very often. (laughs) You can contact them online, pacificjustice.org, pacificjustice.org. And our thanks to Constitutional Lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, for that update. Brad Dacus, again, the website for that video, faithintheworkplace.net. Okay, time to give something away. And, uh, Jarrell, have you cleaned your car lately? No, not been vacuumed and dusted? All right, then we're not going to give that away. That was a thought. <laughs> I think the general manager's got anything lying around that we can give away that belongs to him that he wouldn't notice? Yeah, probably you're right. Now let's not go there either. All right. <laughs> I'll tell you what we will give away. We've got some tickets to enjoy Casting Crowns. It's their finally Christmas tour with special guest Hannah Kerr. They will be performing at the Paramount Theater in Oakland. That'll be on Tuesday, December the 4th at 7.30 p.m. You'll get a chance to enjoy the songs from their latest Christmas release. It's finally Christmas, plus all your favorite songs that you hear on the radio. Perfect date night, women's night out, family event, whatever it might be. Tickets and information available by going to transparentproductions.com or right now, be caller number 11. How many tickets are we giving away here? Just a pair? Does it say, Jarrell, a pair of tickets? Okay, I wanted to be clear about that. Caller number 11 wins, 888-367-5329, 888-367-5329. Live in concert, Tuesday, December 4th, 7.30 p.m. at the Paramount Theater in Oakland. 
It's finally Christmas tour with Casting Crowns. Caller number 11, you win a pair of tickets right now at 888-367-5329, 888-F-O-R-K-F-A-X. Charge. There's no charge for this, is it? No, it's free. What's going on over here? <laughs> Off to the races. All right, while Jarrell's answering your call, let's answer the call to traffic. The latest with Michael Bennett. Michael? Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.